Democracy, Bridging Facts and Norms. So my name is Miriam Ronzoni. At the moment I teach political theory at the University of Manchester in a very uh, large and very diverse politics department with also a strong and relatively speaking um, large uh, political theory unit. So we have a small mini department within a department. Uh, so I guess that I would define myself as a political philosopher, but as one um, who firmly prefers to do that kind of research in a politics background, right? So I studied philosophy originally, but I then did uh, my graduate work in political theory, and I've actually been in politics departments ever since. So you could say that I have a little bit of background in both, but I would say that in spite of having first studied philosophy, I became more and more interested in the um, yeah, applied side of the discipline, not necessarily because I also work a lot uh, on, for instance, methodological issues. So some of the things that I do are quite abstract. Uh, but uh, I do, let's say, appreciate feedback that comes from um, scholars of political science um, uh, very much as well. I was in a variety of different institutions, so I studied in Milan first, then I did my PhD in Oxford, then I was at the UI for a couple of years, and in Germany, in Frankfurt for a while, and now I'm in Manchester. Why did you choose to study political theory? What was your motivation when you decided, well, that's what I want to do? So I guess I studied philosophy in a place where there wasn't a lot of um, moral and political philosophy and it was kind of always clear to me that I ultimately was interested in that kind of topic and also that ultimately I was interested in um, international issues. Um, but uh, it took me actually a long time to figure out exactly what I wanted to do precisely because it wasn't really an offer. So in those years, in your early 20s, where you really um, starting to become an independent person and thinker, but you really still need a lot of guidance. There wasn't a lot of guidance out there. So I first started a PhD in philosophy without really having a very specific agenda. And actually, in those years, I met some people who were actually not from the university where I was based, uh, but uh, neighboring universities who were actually doing political philosophy, and in particular, uh, analytical political philosophy. And actually, they organized an event where I met Thomas Pogge for the first time. And... Uh, to some extent, these people, I'm talking about people, for instance, like Ian Carter, who works in Pavia, and then, of course, this, um, this event with Thomas Pog in particular made me understand, okay, this is, this is the kind of work that I wanted to do, and I guess it was three things that really struck me. Yes, I want to do political philosophy. I want to do analytical political philosophy, so this is really what I like. I don't like... Um, pondering on classics, um, and, uh, and I like the idea of pursuing clarity as much as possible, but I want to do analytical political theory that is relevant. So to some extent, I think it was really 
a lucky strike to actually meet Pogge because I think to some extent he was exactly doing the kind of work that interested me. And I guess neither of these three things were really available to me in my undergrad. So it was mainly continental, it was mainly history of philosophy, and this idea that you really could talk about something that was of really current interest was a little bit frowned upon as not really being of philosophical worth, right? Yeah. So to really find out that actually was possible. And you, you mentioned from the beginning that you were trained as a philosopher and then as a political theorist and that you're working in politics departments. There are those nuances between political science, political theory, political philosophy. Do, is it clear, is it relevant for you to distinguish uh, these three fields? Yes and no. So... Yes and no, and I think actually initially when I when I got my graduate training, it was really it, which was in political theory, but in a place uh, with a very solid philosophical background, and especially you know one of the, one of the cradles of analytical philosophy such as such as Oxford, it was really very much. Although I was in a politics department, it was really very much about getting retrained in philosophy, learning philosophy in a very new way, right? Learning that I could just make an argument myself, that I didn't have to pay um, homage to um, to anybody. It was really, really learning how to think and how to write in a completely different way. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily say that um, my first switch from a philosophy to a political science department was um, uh, was a switch of, of that kind. So I got motivated, as I told you, by meeting Pogan, by meeting other people who were really working on stuff that was really burning, right? And in particular, exactly, I wanted to work on global justice. But then I actually went and, and trained in a place that especially got me trained in methods. So I, I, it was really very philosophical. I would say, and especially back then, now it's different, but back then at Oxford, the people who were doing empirical political science were really, weren't really doing political science that, that I was particularly drawn to. There were a lot of really electoral behavior experts. So I would say that the place that really got me interested in uh, getting a little bit more of empirical input and how the two disciplines could perhaps cross-fertilize each other a bit, although I would say that I'm still, you know, very, very much at the beginning of that, um, was actually the UI. Probably because there were people working, uh, of course, in a very empirical, with a very empirical um, approach, but they were just asking questions that were just much closer to my heart, right? So they were, they were doing comparative political economy, comparative welfare state research. So all of a sudden... Um, I could see that. Um, so that, that was more the... But there was never a moment in which I got any formal training in, in empirical methods of any kind, right? That wasn't... It, that actually never happened. Mm -hmm. But let's say today, you know, if I have to think, you know, outside people who are really in my subdisciplinary area, over and above those people, whom would I like to talk to? To somebody doing logic or philosophy of language or to somebody doing uh, global political economy? And the answer to me is obvious, is the latter. Yeah. Right. And then if you study one topic together from different <laughs> perspectives, what is the um, contribution that political theorists can make and what are excluded from what they can do. Right, so I think I'm still very much in a learning curve in that respect, so I cannot really offer much more than a couple of ideas in random order. So I don't have an agenda or a clear idea about how interdisciplinary research should 
be like and I couldn't even say that my work is interdisciplinary strictly speaking I, I wouldn't quite say that I don't conduct any work that um, that is not the recognizably not political theory but I guess that I am interested in uh, I guess that that three things are important to me one is that I am interested in things about the world as it is right now and that trouble me and us political philosophers are not the people who actually study how these things actually work but the people who study how they actually work do not really have the conceptual language to pin down what exactly may or may not be problematic about them, right? So I work, for instance, just to make a, a random example, I work on issues of tax competition, or I have worked a little bit about them. I haven't conducted any research ab about it, and I perhaps don't even have really great skills to really be able to understand how exactly an empirical work on tax competition could be contested. But of course, I do consider my job to um, get up to date with the literature and understand um, what the main open questions are, but also what the solid findings are over which slowly a consensus is building. So that's something that I'm just, to some extent, taking. But I think that authors and people working on tax competition, even those who are working in the driest possible um, empirical uh, way are actually motivated to some extent by some normative concepts. They think that it is a problem, that they think that it's something that we should grapple with, but exactly, they, they don't necessarily, um, because it's not their job, right? So I'm not saying that they should, right? In the same way in which I will never be able to measure tax competition. So I think that that's really the area. So try and understand what's actually happening in a derivative way, right? Just by being a student of, uh, of the topic. And, and try to figure out, okay, if this is really happening, what is problematic about it? So that's one thing. The other thing I think is the other way around and perhaps a little bit more active, namely, I think that some role, and, and I don't think that this is happening a lot actually, and this is something where perhaps us political philosophers could be a little bit more proactive. Um, we could provide more input in, in helping formulating questions empirical research question. So what is it that is important to find out, right? From a, from a normative point of view, right? What is it that we should find out? This, I think, is, um, is the case on a variety of levels, both from, from, from the point of view of the study of political science, so what sort of institutional transformations it's important to find out, right? So, of course, this is, this is something that political scientists do it by themselves and they do it pretty well. I don't deny it, right? But it's uh, sometimes it's normatively driven, but in a sort of implicit way, sometimes it's not. And I think it's really important for, for political theorists to, to, to say, what are the things that, if they were happening, would be a really, really big problem? So I think this is something. But also in sociology, so from the point of view of um, study of perceptions and beliefs, Right? So what is important to find out? Um, which kind of attitudes towards uh, migrants or towards acceptable or unacceptable inequality is actually important to find out? Right? So, for instance, we, we put in an application for a, for a European grant recently where we actually are, if, if, the, if the grant is successful, we are going, going to do a little bit of that. Right? It's about understanding which kind of inequalities um, Europeans find acceptable 
at various levels, intrastate, interstate, and so on and so forth. And one thing that we want to do is we want philosophers to actually provide some input into the questions that, is going to be, that are going to be asked. So this is the second thing. And I guess the third one is really more methodological. I don't believe in far-fetched thought experiments. And I don't, don't believe in them because I think they're not relevant. I might also believe that they're not relevant, but that's not my reason. I think it's really a methodological point of view. I think um, we don't know why we have certain intuitions about certain things. And on those grounds, I think we shouldn't trust our intuitions in really far-fetched scenarios. There's nothing that guarantees that those intuitions are reliable in any way. So the reason why I don't want to, I want to stick to something closer to home is not necessarily because I want to be relevant, also because I want to be relevant, but also for, for methodological concerns. I don't think that crazy thought experiments necessarily teach us something. On your first point, you mentioned that you rely on empirical studies mm -hmm. to, to come to a very concrete level. How do you select the empirical studies you're going to work on, especially since most political theories don't have this training in empirical social sciences. So how this selection goes to be sure that you take the latest data or the more most relevant data that there is? Oh, uh, I, don't, I don't think that I'm a particularly good example in this respect because I don't think that I'm at the forefront or the best person even among political philosophers. So most of the time I just try to talk to colleagues Right, I really try to get some guidance from them and uh, colleagues could be either people working on these things empirically or colleagues in political theory who are, how, have a more solid interdisciplinary training. Right. And on Just your second point and this project that you have on collaboration, on one previous uh, interview I made with David Miller, he exactly mentioned a case like that. Uh, where he had colleagues making a huge survey and he wanted one specific question to be introduced there and his colleague told him, well, we can't ask this question in a, in a formula, in a survey question. And he was very frustrated about that. So do you think, or whom can you work with in order to make it possible to ask those questions that are normatively relevant? Well, I think that these people were probably right in being frustrated. Sorry, I can understand that David was frustrated, but I also think that these people were probably right in saying this actually cannot, cannot be answered this way. So without having much first-hand experience on this myself, it's just uh, an idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not yet. And yeah. I don't know whether the project would be funded. Perhaps mm -hmm. it won't. And um, I would say that what, what people need is time. Right, it's uh, that this. Um, if it happened this way, so perhaps it didn't happen this way. But if it happened this way, maybe David suggesting a question and them just saying it cannot be asked that way. Period. Then of course, right, things die out. But I think people need time, and a conversation needs to happen. So, what is exactly the the thing that you want to find out, David? Can we perhaps break it down? Can we ask it differently? Can we perhaps um, ask three questions? So I wouldn't necessarily say that, uh, that just because uh, the first question that the theory asks um, doesn't work, it, that, that necessarily means. Having said that, it could be that some things 
um, perhaps cannot really be asked in a survey but need qualitative research. That, that is perfectly possible, right? This project, for instance, is, and, and again, I, re I really hope it works out because it would be really amazing. This project has exactly as everything, right? They have, they, it has the, the theoretical component, the quantitative component, and the qualitative one as well, right? So it could really allow to, to tease out different things. You mentioned in the beginning this thrive to study global justice. Um, how, in general, do you choose topics of research? I have no idea. Um, it just, I, I don't think that I choose them, right? And this could sound pretentious, right? They come to me and, I, but it feels a little bit that way, right? So with global justice, it was probably a little bit more of a choice because as I told you, I was coming from a place where I didn't have the impression that I could studied this stuff to begin with, that I could study global justice, that I could say, make normative arguments myself, that I could talk about the here and now. And so perhaps I had to insist and research and, and I was also a little bit lucky and then it happened. But to be honest with you, since I, I am firmly in the analytical way of operating, I I don't really experience things, things this way anymore. Like... Um, I choose it and I make a conscious choice, probably because my broad agenda hasn't really changed and my big area of work is still global justice and it could be that it's going to stay like that forever. But when it comes to smaller project, like, like a paper on pornography and feminist thinking that I've been working on lately, it's, um, it's really... I don't know, I think the analytical method just gives you a lot of freedom, right? You come across something, and quite often uh, I even come across it because of teaching, and you have an idea, and, uh, and you think, why not? I think, I, I think this is an idea for a paper. This is really something that is very, very liberating and refreshing about the analytical method. There was a follow-up to that question, which is namely, yeah. are we responsible to think about specific questions? Okay, no, I see what you mean. So, okay, so perhaps then, now my answer perhaps wasn't exactly accurate. I would say that my big research agenda is still broadly speaking on issues of global justice, right? And that might have changed. So eight years ago, I was asking, I was working on more general and abstract questions, trying to figure out what my actually theory of global justice um was then uh, there was a phase in which I was interested in very applied issues and I was particularly interested in issues of global economy and now I am particularly issue, interested in issues of, of how to spread sovereignty across different levels if you actually want to tackle certain issues politically in the relevant kind of ways. So perhaps the emphasis changes but that this is my main concern is clear and then I might you know be exactly I might be attracted by things by smaller things like exactly this this paper on pornography or another on other small things and I feel that the analytical method just gives you the freedom to say okay if you have a good idea why not write a paper about it but you are right the question of whether we have a professional or moral responsibility that's something perhaps that I don't really ask myself anymore because it's clear that this is the main topic and it seems to me I don't know, perhaps it's pretentious, but it seems to me so obvious that this is the central question, that this is the big cluster of problems that we have to solve, that um, 
that I don't, I don't, I don't feel that I need to justify myself, right? So perhaps there was moments that I haven't stopped uh, doing that in which I was more, you know, thinking whether, you know, whether really address, whether really addressing these topics as a, as an academic was really was really the right way. Um, but the issue of whether there's something more important or more relevant or, or, or yeah, more, more urgent to pin down. I, I have to be honest, I haven't really never had a doubt about it, that it's so, it's so obvious to me that it's so urgent and important that... You just mentioned this question of whether doing it as an academic is the right approach to it. And I was wondering, when you write about a topic that you care so much about and that is, or you feel is so relevant, I think it's very relevant too, um, What audience do you have in mind when you write? And do you sometimes feel the need to broaden your audience to not only fellow academics? So in principle, yes, with two caveats. The first one is I am here again very much, not even on a learning curve, but at the beginning of a learning curve. So I definitely have friends and colleagues who I think um, are trying to do that and know how to do it very well. And... Uh, I'm not sure that I'm particularly, I'm particularly um, good at doing it. In theory, I would definitely be interested. It's still, I'm just still very much in the business of figuring out what it is. Um, with, however, a caveat that is that I think as a citizen, not really as an academic, I, I really don't believe in this idea of the philosopher king, right? Let me tell you what I mean by that, however. So I, I was in Frankfurt for quite a while, right? And, um, and the Frankfurt way of, of, of interpreting that claim, that we shouldn't think in terms of philosopher kings, is much more radical. So the Frankfurt tradition and even the, the more recent way, even Habermas and now Renner Faust, really think that philosophers really shouldn't be in the business of producing normative recipes, right? So I don't necessarily go as far as that. But I'm very wary of intervening in broader audiences as, as the expert on the field. I would like to find a way to bring in, of course, my resources, but in a way in which it's clear that it's, uh, that it's not just the expert in the field delivering uh, pearls of wisdom, because to some extent I think that this is really the problem of how democracy currently works, that we think it's just about figuring out what the right policy and that the expert will tell you what sort of policy we should apply, so in that respect. So to, yeah, so to be honest with you, um, but this is perhaps just a biographical personal issue, I am, uh, um, when, I, when I wonder what to do with, uh, with my time outside of my, of my work and what to do in a way that is useful to the community, I find myself much more attracted in doing really foot soldier things really sort of party member foot soldiers. Not necessarily because I think that I don't have anything to contribute, but... Um, I'm not sure that's what you were saying, but it seems to me that it's a bit like, in your role as an academic, you can't really impose your opinion as an expert on a topic, and what you can do is, as a citizen, to act in more local civil society organizations or parties? Yeah, no, I'm not necessarily saying that I don't want to, you know, appeal to a broader audience, even with the, the specifics of my own work. I think, you know, the, the, in, in the coming years, there will certainly be encouragement, and I'm sure that I will welcome it to, to participate to events of this kind, rather whether in think tanks or in similar kinds of fora. What I'm saying is, I guess, that... Um, 
that there was a time in our European post-war democracy in which that happened in a much more peer-to-peer -peer way, in which everybody could think about politics, even in grand terms. So perhaps I'm, 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 I'm sure that I'm idealizing that period because I haven't lived through it. But that's, there was something, I think, deeply democratic about it, about the idea that everybody, that, that, that the professor and the factory worker could really um, have big disagreements about, um, about principled issues within a certain ideological paradigm, right? And, uh, and I think that that's closer to real democracy than a world in which experts in certain fields with a certain ideological leaning are recruited and are recruited straight away in a top-down fashion, which seems to be a little bit more what happens today. So I'm not necessarily saying that I'm not interested in doing that at all. And of course, I have a, a specific expertise and a specific resource, right? But there are other resources too, the resources of a person who, who works in a certain kind of environment and in a certain uh, production chain. And, and, uh, and I think we should recuperate that peer-to-peer -peer attitude in which everybody has expertise to contribute. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a last question that I asked everyone, because the discussion is going a bit in this direction. Can political theory harm and do we have ways of preventing it? In the sense that you're saying experts um, imposing their opinion would be bad. Is it a form of an instance where political theory could possibly harm real existing societies or democracies? In that sort of way, uh, I think political theory is, in the, in the, at least in the sense in, in which I meant it in, in, in the topic that we were just discussing about, I think just political theory is uh, nowhere near to have enough power to do that, right? It's something that definitely economics has. It definitely has the power to harm public debates by taking for granted certain theoretical paradigms that shouldn't be taken for granted at all. But I don't think that political theory enjoys that position of power. I mean, it can happen in other ways. So uh, certainly... For political philosophers, like for other academics, it can be easy and it can be an easy temptation, and it's the case for me too, that's why I'm so wary about it, to become very irritated and impatient with, uh, with the way in which democracy works, right? So why? This is obviously the truth. Why don't people believe it? It's obviously the case that migration is a net benefit for everybody. So why do, how do people still xenophobic? So it's very easy to just get very impatient, right? So why doesn't everybody recognize what truth? So in that sense, it can become, it can harm by becoming so detached. And it can definitely harm in other ways, which, however, we haven't really been talking about that much today. So towards the beginning of our talk, I, I told you, right, I'm, I'm very skeptical about the use of, of thought experiments because I don't think that they're methodologically very, um, very compelling. But another thing that happens with that kind of research is just that I think it, uh, it just uh, drives us away completely from what could have been the original motivation from embarking on, uh, on something. So the, the most obvious example, right? A certain approach within theories of social justice, which um, especially in Great Britain was very, very popular towards the last 15, 20 years, was so-called lack egalitarianism, right? It started with a very noble cause, the idea of whether we could combine egalitarian um, 
insights with the idea that actually responsibility matters too, right? It gone on off on a tangent whereby it actually seems to justify certain very, very conservative policies. That's not the case, they would say, because they would say that's not what we would actually recommend. We're actually trying to pin down what equality is, even if it can never actually be pinned down in this pure way in real life circumstances, because it mixed with so many other things. I am very skeptical that that's the that's the um, that that's the right way of finding out why exactly we care about equality. So that's a way in which it can be harmful by um, by being hijacked, by not realizing. So going off on a, on a tangent and not realizing how it can get hijacked for political agendas that are very very different from the ones with which it originally started. But that we cannot really prevent how one's work will be reused in political discourses. Or can you? You cannot. No, no, no. You cannot. So I have a friend who um, actually is writing a paper saying we should actually bear responsibility for that. We should write with that in mind. And I think that that's too much. But we can decide um, to care when we realize that we're being hijacked. And I think that quite a few political philosophers don't care. So you mean care by entering the debate yeah. and defending your ideas as you intend? That's not what we meant. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Brought to you by democracynet.eu.